All right, as we, as we gather back in from lunch, uh, I want to welcome all of you back. Thank you all for, for sticking around for this afternoon. The next panel is all about proving consumer perception. So much of, of what we talk about when we talk about intellectual property-related disputes has to do with um, what, what people out in the world are seeing when uh, people are using various types of, of works or various kinds of marks. And so this is a panel where we really focus in on how do you, how do you quantify, how do you describe, how do you think about what consumers are seeing in connection to the dispute. So I will, I will turn it over to the panel. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Michael. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Barton Beebe. I teach here at the law school in intellectual property. And it's my great privilege uh, to be sitting up here with this superstar uh, set of panelists. I will introduce them very briefly, and then we will uh, proceed to a discussion of the topic about proving uh, similarity. So uh, just to my immediate right is David Bernstein. Uh, David co-teaches advanced trademark law with me here at NYU. He's an extraordinarily good classroom teacher, uh, very generous towards our students. Um, and he is also happens to be the head of the uh, intellectual property litigation group at Debevoise and Plimpton. And as I was looking at, just most recently, the latest list of the cases he has litigated or is currently involved in, they read like some of, like maybe one-third of the biggest cases in trademark law in the past 20 or 30 years. I teach many of them, uh, as do many others. So it's a great privilege uh, to have him on the uh, panel. Uh, to David's right is Graham Dinwoody. Uh, I never miss a chance to say that Graham is, in my view, the leading authority in the world on trademark law. He is certainly the only person I know of who has total expertise both on U.S. trademark law and European trademark law. Uh, many people can pose, such as myself, on, in one or the other, but Graham is uh, the real thing, so it's uh, very excited to hear his comments. I should say, uh, as a matter of institutional affiliation, Graham is currently the Global Professor of Intellectual Property Law at Ch Chicago Kent College of Law, where he is also more generally a university professor there, uh, which is a a highly distinguished position there. Uh, before that, he was at Oxford and was the intellectual property law professor at Oxford uh, and also ran their um, uh, intellectual property research center. Uh, and uh, that explains, I think, to some extent, his great exposure to European uh, 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 trademark law and intellectual property law more generally. And then to Graham's right is Johanna Schmidt. Uh, who comes to us from Kirkland and Ellis. And I was just reading uh, in The American Lawyer of, I guess it's this month, uh, it's like a couple of, well, last yeah. month. Last month. Hot off the presses. There's this wonderful review of Kirkland's Bionic Women. Uh, it's a group of litigators. I think if you're in intellectual property litigation, you know about Kirkland's intellectual property group. And Johanna is one of the Bionic Women there. And if you look at the list of cases she's litigated in copyright law, trademark law, you see the other portion of the leading cases in trademark law, uh, in, uh, at least in the US. Uh, and I recognize cases that are in our casebook. So um, as I say, it truly is a great privilege for me uh, to be up here with these three panelists. And I hope you'll enjoy their uh, commentary on the question of similarity. So we'll begin with David. I've been instructed to time their remarks to about 10 minutes each. We'll see how that goes. Uh, then we'll have some internal discussion and then turn things over to the uh, to people uh, assembled here. So David, please, thanks. Sorry about that. All right, well, thank you. Uh, thank you, Barton. And, uh, to the Engelberg Center for having us. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to assume some familiarity with surveys, uh, rather given the time restraints, so that we can really get into the issue I want to talk about. And that issue is when we are uh, looking at the different uh, results of likelihood of confusion surveys, what should the threshold be? Now, I think there's some uh, conventional wisdom that you want to get at least 15 to 20% confusion. Uh, if, you, if you have a survey that shows a net level of confusion of 15 to 20% or more, a lot of courts will say, yes, that's enough. That shows that an appreciable number of consumers are likely to be confused. And, and actually, that's the key standard that we've heard from the Second Circuit and other courts, that you want to show an appreciable number of consumers have been confused. 
Um, and if you're below that, then the conventional wisdom is, wow, that's probably not enough. Uh, where did this number come from? Why is 15% sort of the magic number? So I've gone back and I've looked at some of the early cases that established the 15% threshold. And we can go back to the 1970s. And I think really the, the first key case was the uh, Beefeater case back in 1976 from the Seventh Circuit. Now in this case, the uh, question was whether this restaurant, which was selling roast beef dinners at the sign of the Beefeater, infringed the famous Beefeater gin mark. And a survey was done and found that about 15% of consumers were confused into believing that this restaurant came from or had some affiliation with the famous gin brand. And the district court said, well, that's not enough. 15% is just too small. That's too small a number. But the Seventh Circuit reversed. And the Seventh Circuit said, no, actually, 15% is enough. It is not a small number. And the fact that it was a reversal, I think, is quite significant, because it's not as if there were fact findings here that, that, the, that the Court of Appeals deferred to. Rather, the Court of Appeals said, look, I'm going to accept the finding that 15% of uh, consumers are deceived here. And the Court of Appeals specifically said that number is sufficient. And we've seen, just by historical accident, this 15% number appear in other cases. In the uh, Hawaiian punch case I have up here, the RJR Foods case, uh, there was 15 to 20% confusion. And in the Texan case, it was also 15% confusion. So here are three cases in the sort of early days of trademark surveys, all of which found that 15% was enough. There was no discussion as to why that was enough. There's no uh, academic consideration of what makes that threshold significant. It's not like genericism surveys where you want to get over 50%. You want to show that more than half of consumers perceive the mark as being a brand name as opposed to a generic term. I can understand intellectually why 50% might make sense there. Why 15%? Well, one of the things that's really key about these cases that I want to uh, hone in on is that in all three of these cases, there wasn't a control. And this was really in the time before controls were regularly used in surveys. And indeed, in the, the McSleep-In case, which was more recent, from 1988, there the court also found that 16% was enough. This was another case where there was no control. The question here is, were consumers deceived into believing that McSleep-In had some affiliation with, who do you think? McDonald's, of course, because they have this family of McMarks. And believe it or not, the survey showed 16%, again, without a control. So this is gross confusion, just like the three cases I, I showed in the prior slide. And yet the court said, look, I know there's some noise in this number. The courts were sophisticated enough to say, we know that this is not measuring the actual number. Some people guess. Some people are just giving me a brand reference. Some people might be uh, led or biased by the way the questions are asked. But even if there is some amount of noise in that number, 16% is a significantly high number that it shows that there are an appreciable number of consumers deceived. So this is really key, because the cases that are still regularly cited for the 15% threshold come from an error when we were talking largely about gross measures of confusion, not the net levels of confusion we see today. Now, I will say there are some cases from this error where less than 15% was accepted. And I still try to cite some of these cases from time to time. You know, here in New York, the Steinweg case is probably the one that uh, confusion was found on the lowest numbers, 7.7% or 8.5%, depending on whether you were looking at uh, uh, whether it was a business affiliation or actual confusion. But the court there did say, look, this level of confusion is enough. It shows an appreciable level of consumers are deceived. And in the, in the jockey case, that was involving whether jock sock was uh, infringing of the jockey trademark. In the Goya case I have up there, we have also levels below 15% that were found sufficient. So we've got some history that suggests that some levels of confusion below this, this received wisdom of 15% can be enough. And yet, the courts have pretty much stuck to that 15% threshold. And we've seen it time and again, uh, including pretty recently in the 1-800-CONTACTS uh, case in the Tenth Circuit, where the court specifically said, actually, 7.5% confusion, which was the same as in the Steinbeck case, that actually is evidence of non-confusion. That if you get a level of confusion like this, 
uh, in a survey, it actually is evidence that people are not deceived. It's not an appreciable number of consumers. So why does it matter? And what's the key proposition I want to leave you with today? It's this notion that the 15% number that a number of courts relied on were before controls. And controls are critically important. I mean, here's one case we had in the Seventh Circuit involving these food replacement bars, South Beach Solutions. And the question is, by using the South Beach name on the bar, were you deceiving people into believing that these bars came from or were affiliated with Dr. Agatston, who was the uh, doctor who created the South Beach diet? Now, if you just did a survey, we might not know are people deceived because they think all low-carb uh, products must be associated with Dr. Agatston, or because the teal color of the bar is the same as the teal color of, of his book, or the palm trees, for example, and he has a palm tree on the cover of his book. But we really wanted to focus in on is the South Beach name causing the deception? And so we created a control that mirrored virtually everything about that but only took off the South Beach name. This control is as perfect a control as you can get. It allows us to measure with great precision to what degree are people deceived only by the inclusion of the name South Beach on the bar as opposed to anything else. And of course, we did find over 15% net confusion, so that was very supportive of our, of our preliminary injunction application. But in so many of these other cases that we've talked about today, where the 15% threshold was created, it was based on gross confusion. And so the proposition I'd like to leave us with is that when courts today say the threshold is 15% and they cite these old cases, they're talking about gross confusion, which is not the same as the net confusion that we are able to measure with much greater specificity today, given the use of very creative controls. Now, what should the right number be? Should it be 15%? Should it be something less than that? How should we evaluate what is truly an appreciable number of consumers? And I think there's a few things that, uh, that we can look at. I, I like to focus on the fact that if we have measured with great specificity with a control that 7 or 8%, like in the Steinberg case, or 10 or 11%, like in some of the other cases uh, we've looked at already today, are truly deceived, and we've measured the level of, of noise, we've measured mismeasurement error or bias or leading nature of the questions, and we know that's a true number, then if we're talking about a large market, we are talking about a very large number of consumers. If you're talking about all consumers who go to fast food restaurants, which was the case in the Wendy's uh, commercial here um, against Big Bite, so Big Bite had a television ad comparing uh, its pita sandwiches to Wendy's hamburgers and McDonald's hamburgers and Burger King hamburgers and saying that uh, people should go to Big Bite instead. And uh, in that case, uh, the court found that 7% of consumers were deceived into believing that this was sponsored or approved or somehow affiliated with Wendy's. And the court said that that small percentage nevertheless represents millions of consumers. And I think we need to focus on the size of the market in thinking about what is an appreciable number. A, a really accurate measure of confusion at that level can still be millions of people. What are some of the other things we can look at? Um, how proximate are the products competitively? If the products are directly competitive and you're showing a relatively uh, smaller number of confusion, let's say in the 7 to 10% range or 10 to 12% range, but the products are really sold in direct competition, that may also be something that would be relevant. So I'd like to suggest that courts should be more open to focusing on what are the appreciable number of consumers who are being deceived here. Um, and courts could look at certainly the quality of the survey design. So if the controls are giving us very precise measures, I think courts should be open to accepting that a smaller number than the conventional wisdom should be enough. There may be other reference points we should look at, so the market size or the competitive proximity. There are also other measures in these surveys. Look at the quality of the verbatims. Sometimes the verbatims where you ask, why do you say that? They actually are very specific and can show you that I'm deceived because it used the South Beach name. If you see that, it's actually telling you that it's not random, that it's the use of that name that was really the thing that was deceptive. And then the final point I'll make is that if you do find a survey that shows, let's say, something in the 7 to 10% range, 
even if a court might be reluctant to enjoin it, courts should be open to thinking about are there other remedies that might be appropriate, given that we still have a portion of the market that's deceived. Maybe we wouldn't enjoin it, but maybe we should think about disclaimers or other ways of trying to minimize that level of confusion that won't also harm the rest of the market. So I look forward to <coughs> chatting with the panel and you all about this uh, idea further. Thanks very much. Uh, thank you, the organizers, for the uh, opportunity to uh, uh, come talk to you. I'm going to talk about uh, the question of proving consumer confusion in trademark cases, so the same topic uh, to some extent as, as David, but from a comparative uh, perspective. Um, the focus of my remarks, however, is actually going to be provoked by a tension in the United States between the black letter doctrine on the one hand uh, and the actual practice, as revealed in Barton's study from about 10, 12 years ago, regarding the use of the multi-factor uh, confusion test in U.S. courts. Uh, black letter law uh, suggests that a survey, as David sort of suggested there, I think, that a survey is the best evidence of confusion. However, when Barton did his study, he found that um, although many believed that to be the case, and the black letter law says that, um, in fact, the surveys were rarely presented by parties and very often not credited um, by courts. Um, now, obviously, at the micro level, um, judges can be persuaded of the failings of any particular survey in a particular case. But given Barton's systemic finding across a variety of cases, th is there, in fact, in the U.S. courts, a more generalized skepticism towards surveys? Um, in that respect, uh, it's intriguing that in the recent years, so the last sort of seven or eight years, um, in some of the other more significant common law jurisdictions throughout the world, judges have uh, almost uniformly uh, started to express skepticism uh, about surveys as a means of showing confusions, and surveys have started to recede as a means of, of proving uh, consumer confusion. So you have a decision from the Canadian Supreme Court, you have a decision from uh, senior courts the, in the federal system in Australia, and you have a decision, uh, two decisions actually from the English Court of Appeal that I'll talk about in a minute, which are pretty much uh, at one you know, on this point and on this skepticism. Right? So I'm gonna focus on this interflora decision that's on the bottom of the last slide. And the two brief points that I want to highlight from the British experience are, first of all, why have the British courts turned their backs um, on surveys, and do those reasons apply uh, with as much force uh, in the United States? And secondly, once you start moving away from surveys uh, as a way of proving confusion, what uh, comes up to fill that particular gap? All right. So Interflora is a keyword advertising case, a really significant uh, case that went on for 10 years, still going on. Uh, Marks and Spencer's had purchased uh, the keyword Interflora such that an ad for Marks and Spencer's online flora delivery orders came up in response to a search for Interflora, pretty standard uh, litigation. Interflora conducted a survey which involved uh, uh, taking respondents who were initially screened into a hall with laptop computers. They were asked to type the word Interflora into a search box on the Google homepage. Um, the result they got was not actually a real search. Uh, they got the search come up that actually was at issue uh, in the litigation. Um, and then they were asked a series of questions, not unlike the kind of questions that a US survey uh, uh, would pose. Um, Interflora didn't actually use the survey numbers, however, in the litigation. Uh, this was actually what the British courts called the witness gathering exercise or witness collection exercise. Um, the UK courts have previously expressed the view that it was much more valuable to them to hear evidence from real consumers um, than trying to extrapolate from statistics um, uh, in surveys. Uh, so it became not uncommon for a survey to be accompanied by testimony from some of the people who were surveyed. They were actually brought into court uh, during uh, uh, trial. And in fact, in some instances, the witness gave testimony and then the survey wasn't even introduced. So they, all that the survey was actually doing was actually collecting uh, the particular witnesses. So since 1984, under sort of case management practices, parties who wish to be able to admit a survey and therefore be able to recover costs if they won the case under the English rule, actually needed advance permission from the UK courts uh, to conduct, um, uh, conduct the survey. And that was true also if the survey was only being used for witness collection exercise. Um, so in uh, the Interflora case, when the trial judge, Mr. Justice Arnold, admitted uh, witness collection evidence, um, and that issue was appealed to the Court of Appeal, the whole issue of whether surveys were admissible was put on the table. So Lord Justice Lewison, 
interestingly for an IP case, not an IP judge, uh, wrote the opinion for the court and suggested that survey-based evidence was generally of little or no value. He said sometimes it does no more than confirm the conclusion that the judge would have reached without the evidence. So he held that even if the survey or evidence from witnesses emanating from the survey is technically admissible, the judge shouldn't let it in unless satisfied, first of all, that it would be valuable, and secondly, that the likely utility of the evidence justifies the costs involved, and he considered in this case uh, that in fact Interflora hadn't shown um, that there was real value uh, to the particular evidence. Mr. Justice Arnold was not deterred uh, by the Court of Appeal, and this time he uh, went back down to him and he uh, allowed in additional survey uh, evidence on a slightly strained interpretation maybe of the Court of Appeal's decision claiming that this survey evidence was actually spontaneous, actual confusion evidence, um, back to the Court of Appeal. All right? um, and Lord Justice Lewison was having none of it. Uh, he said, with the benefit of hindsight, <laughs> I perhaps uh, I did not make my message quite clear enough in Interflora 1. Let me say it uh, again, but more loudly. A judge should not let in evidence of this kind unless the party seeking to call that evidence satisfies him that it is likely to be of bold and upper caps real value and that the likely value of the evidence uh, justifies the cost. All right, so the upper caps, very Trumpian, and bold apparently conveys the force um, of the view. Uh, indeed, Curley, uh, which is the leading practitioner's Bible for trademarks um, uh, in the United Kingdom, has actually taken to repeating that presentational form to convey the force of it when it refers to the test. So this is actually in one of the pages that throughout their, their treatise, they actually use the real value test in upper caps, just so you get the message the Lord Justice Lewison was trying uh, to convey. Uh, the court said, uh, and this is true both of Lewison and also Robin Jacob in the concurring opinion, that uh, it was not absolutely precluding the omission of surveys. Uh, it was lying. It has. All right. Uh, I am not aware uh, of any single case since Interflora in six years where a survey has been omitted on confusion. It has been occasionally on distinctiveness on secondary meaning, but not on confusion. Effectively, they have killed surveys um, in the UK courts. So what are the reasons uh, for this? Well, first, they have had great doubts about whether surveys are reliable uh, in their methodological rigor, impartial implementation, accuracy of the conclusions drawn. Essentially, they think of surveys uh, as second best constructed evidence, both because of the artificial environment uh, in which they're asked, differing from the actual purchasing uh, experience and because of the higher gun dimension to dueling party adduced surveys. Secondly, surveys can be expensive to design, uh, to conduct, and critique. And concern about the cost of litigation has generally become more prominent in the United Kingdom in recent years. And this was actually referenced by Lord Justice Lewison um, uh, in the Interflora case. And it's clearly the cost issue that is driving a lot of the debate. So, my question that I was asking at the beginning there was do those concerns transfer to the context of the United States? such that they might be informing the unspoken US resistance that Barton detected in his study 12 years ago. Uh, well, one might expect the first concern to apply in the US, uh, but that manifests itself, the concern about reliability, uh, in case by case, critiquing of the weight of surveys rather than a blanket rule decrying them. Um, it might also be that there is an appropriate difference between the US and the UK on this, because the value side of the cost-benefit ledger uh, might be less weighty in the United Kingdom because the UK courts, starting actually in the Interflora case, have taken pains to stress that the concept of the average consumer, who is the person in EU law language who has to be confused, is a normative legal fiction. So in an earlier iteration of the case, Lord Justice Kitchen characterized the average consumer in trademark law as a, quote, person who has been created, doesn't exist, has been created, uh, to strike the right balance between various competing interests, including on the one hand, the need to protect consumers, and on the other hand, the promotion of free trade in an openly competitive market, unquote. So a court's legal conclusion about whether uh, a defendant gets too close is more than a mere empirical assessment that one would get uh, from a survey. Now, that may or may not be true. We could have a debate about that uh, in the United States, but it's certainly no as the US court has articulated it uh, in those particular forms uh, as the essence of trademark infringement. The second concern of costs might also transfer to the United States, but a completely different calculus might be in order, whereas here, of course, we don't have a loser-pay system. So the English cost regime and the threat of having to pay the other side's costs arguably works as a disincentive to vindicate rights. So making litigation more expensive might play out with even more pernicious effects uh, in the United Kingdom than it has in the United States. 
Second point, and I'll finish with this, uh, as I see I'm running out of time, uh, what has happened in the UK to fill the gap of surveys? Has expert evidence and empirical analysis um, gone away? Well, the answer is no. Uh, first of all, we still have expert evidence admissible on the conditions of market and consumer behavior generally, which judges then use to inform its anal their analysis in particular cases. So for example, in Interflora itself, when it eventually gets to trial before Mr. Justice Arnold did take three, uh, he allowed expert evidence um, regarding searching habits of people using searching engines. That included an eye tracking study, which uh, uh, Google had commissioned, which produced heat maps to show where people looked at particular uh, parts of, uh, of a search results page. It included a study by Ben Edelman and Duncan Gilchrist from Harvard Business School on the effect of labeling ads. So that expert evidence still gets it. Secondly, and perhaps more worryingly, litigants have started to scour for more direct evidence of actual confusion now that they can't use surveys. So the plaintiffs in a number of cases have sought to rely on completely random third-party third online uses um, of the marks uh, as evidence of confusion. Um, and given the mass of online information, obviously it's not hard to find some crazy examples um, of confused usage. And one has to ask, I think, whether in fact admitting uh, that kind of evidence is worse or better uh, by the same standards to which the courts have been holding what are much more scientific surveys. So in sum, if Barton is right, as he suggested in his survey, uh, survey sorry, in his study uh, 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 12 years ago, uh, that US courts are less persuaded by surveys than the black letter law suggests, the UK experience, I think, suggests that it's worth thinking hard about the alternatives for jettisoning the existing approach that American courts use to survey evidence. Instead, it might be that the focus should be to address the reasons why courts have concerns uh, about existing surveys by improving reliability and reducing costs. And there's an irony in that those two may actually cut against each other. But also, I think, thinking about other ways in which expert evidence can help courts make informed judgments about the way they regulate the competitive environment. Thank you. Thanks. I'm going to turn the tables now away from trademark law and uh, similarity between trademarks and likelihood of confusion and talk about issues of similarity in the copyright context. Um, in doing so, I'm going to talk about the Ninth Circuit somewhat recent decision in Rentmeester versus Nike. Um, that case is near and dear to me as I worked on it. I represented Nike along with my partner, Dale, who will be up on the next panel. Um, and it's playoff season and everybody loves basketball and thinking about Michael Jordan. Um, so by way of background, um, <coughs> Rentmeester is a photographer. He um, created this photograph of Michael Jordan on the left in the early 80s. At the time, Mr. Jordan, or Michael, um, was a student in college. He was on the US Olympic team. He was you know, a, a bright and hopeful star. Um, this photograph was published in Life magazine um, it, as part of a piece on US Olympic hopefuls in the early 80s. Um, flash forward a couple years, um, late 80s, Michael Jordan's on the Chicago Bulls. He um, is hired by Nike. He's a superstar. Uh, Nike creates this photograph in the middle, um, which it used in ad campaigns at the time for its then new um, Air Jordan brand. Um, and Rentmeester sued Nike just a few years ago um, for copyright infringement, claiming that Nike's photograph infringed his photograph. And he also claimed that Nike's Jumpman logo, which has been printed on a gajillion pairs of sneakers um, over the years, also infringed his photograph. So I remember uh, when I first got this case, looking at the complaint in my living room, my husband walked by and said, oh boy, you're in trouble. Like, that, those look the same to me. Now, if it was a trademark case, I'd be worried, because he's a consumer of sneakers. But I said, oh, you know nothing about the law or copyright <laughs> principles. So, you know, and thank goodness the court agreed, spoiler alert. Um, and the district court dismissed the case, finding no um, similarity, and the Ninth Circuit agreed. Um, so what did the Ninth Circuit do? Um, first of all, in copyright cases, it's important to remember that similarity comes up in different parts of the test. So this is a flow chart that I created um, sort of to visualize the things you have to prove to win a copyright case in the Ninth Circuit. It's similar among other circuits. 
Um, but you know, you have to prove you own a copyright and that there's been copying of protected aspects of the work. And that breaks down further. So for that factor, you need to prove two things. One is actual copying, that somebody actually copied the work because independent creation is a defense, if, even if they are identical. Um, and with actual copying, sometimes you can prove that with direct evidence. People admit it. There's a photograph of them with, at the Xerox machine. I don't know, but I mean, that's a little less common. More commonly, people prove that through circumstantial evidence, and that's the defendant had access plus the two works share similarities that are probative of copying. So that's one place where similarity comes up. Um, in addition to actual copying, you have to prove that there's been illicit copying or unlawful appropriation. So you could copy something, but if it's in the public domain, there's no claim. So you have to prove both. And that's what courts often refer to as substantial similarity. In the Ninth Circuit, there's a two-part test, um, the extrinsic test, which assesses objective similarities between the two works after filtering out unprotectable elements, and the intrinsic test, which is sort of a holistic, uh, you know, touch, you know, total concept and feel comparison. Um, and the, uh, the extrinsic test can be decided by a court as a matter of law. So we, or Nike, moved to dismiss Rentmeester's complaint on an early 12b6 motion, you know, on the grounds that the works, when you look at them, are too dissimilar. He can't state a claim, you know, that it satisfies the extrinsic test as a matter of law. And that's just a good practice point for copyright cases. For trademark cases, I'm not a patent lawyer, but maybe it's the same. It's hard to get cases dismissed early. It's very factual. People allege confusion, whatnot. And then you have to go through discovery, have experts, survey experts, all that to, to sort through it. With a copyright case, sometimes if it's books or movies or something the judge can look at side by side, as a defendant, you can make a claim and get it dismissed. If it's complicated music or source code or something that you really need someone to talk about what's protectable or not, it might not work. But in this case, it did. And, and the Ninth Circuit affirmed dismissal. Another thing that this case, the Ninth Circuit did in this case was clarify the application of the inverse ratio rule. So Rentmeester rent seized on sort of, I mean, I don't want to criticize the Ninth Circuit, but there was imprecise language in some older decisions which said things like, if you have strong proof of access, then the standard for substantial similarity is lower. And Rentmeester seized on that um, and said, oh, the, under the inverse, you know, I've alleged you know, access by Nike, they had my photograph, ergo the standard for substantial similarity is lower and um, the works don't have to be as similar and you know, I should, my claim should survive. And what we argued and what the Ninth Circuit um, confirmed is that the ad in inverse ratio rule only applies to the, this, this similarity test under the actual copying. It has nothing to do with this test. Um, and so you know, that didn't apply here and, 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 we, and they rejected that argument. So in comparing the works, the courts you know, obviously had the work side by side. And in the Ninth Circuit, what, and in most courts, is the first thing they have to do is decide what is the idea of the work, because that's not protectable. Um, and here we argued, and Rentmeester said in articles and in his complaint, that the idea was having Michael Jordan dunk a ball in a pose inspired by ballet's Grand Jeté. Um, and the court found that, you know, okay, that's the idea, not protectable. Granted it broad protection because there's a, you know, a number of ways you could do that. Um, but here found that even though Nike's photograph also was basically loosed perhaps on a, a grand jeté, that, the, that, they, that, that they looked very different. In Rentmeester's photograph, you know, he looks, he's in a scissor split, he's looking like he's moving horizontally. In Nike's photograph, he, it looks like he's moving up. His legs are sort of straddled. Um, the Ninth Circuit clarified that you can't have copyright protection in a pose, just the pose, meaning 
I could pose one way and you could have a marionette pose in the same way. That's not copyright infringement. It's how you express that pose. And here, again, the poses were different. Um, the limbs were placed differently, arms, you know, not quite the same. Um, the Ninth Circuit recognized that, okay, both have the same concept of shooting him outside, not in a traditional basketball court. But that's, that's where it ended. The, the, the expression of that was very different. Brent Meester, he's outside, there's a grassy knoll, the sun is pictured. You know, in the Nike photograph, it's the Chicago skyline. The colors are different. The mood is different. I mean, over here in Rent Meester's photograph, Michael Jordan is a hopeful. Is he going to make it? I mean, you don't know if he's going to make that shot. You know, everybody's rooting for him, but it's just not clear. I mean, Nike's photograph is all about triumph. Here I am. I'm in Chicago, and, and I rule the world. Um, you know, and, and went on and on about the different arrangement of the basketball hoop, et cetera. So in the end, the court found that, you know, the differences meant that Rentmeester couldn't state copyright infringement as a matter of law. And as a sort of final practice pointer, I mean, we've, we've done this before and had success, and obviously courts have dismissed early on. You know, at that point, proving the differences as a defendant you don't have a fact witness. You don't have an expert explaining it. So in your briefs, you need to really um, make charts and bullets and really walk the court through all the differences. You can't just say, oh, look at them. They're different. See, I mean, you have to, even if it seems painfully obvious, you know, the blue sky versus red sky, and sort of juxtaposing all the differences can be um, very powerful to a court and sort of prove that, um, that the works aren't similar. Thank you. Thanks to all the panelists for really interesting uh, presentations, which I'm sure have raised a lot of questions among the audience. But first, uh, as was our plan, I want to turn it over to the panelists to see if they have comments for each other or questions for each other. Uh, and I'll also maybe throw in a question or two. But first, um, uh, maybe some discussion of the value of survey evidence might be in order. Yeah, so Graham, actually, your, your remarks made me think about the way some U.S. courts are thinking about surveys and false advertising cases these days, because we're seeing increasingly courts being very skeptical of what does the survey show. And uh, a couple of cases that come to mind, one from the Seventh Circuit was the first choice of doctors claim, where the survey showed confusion, and the Court of Appeals said, those are regular words. I don't need a survey to know what these words mean. So I don't care what the survey shows. I'm going to find that this is truthful advertising. Mm. Uh, or in the Havana Club case, where a survey showed net confusion, about 15% of consumers believed that Havana Club rum sold by Bacardi here in the United States, made in Puerto Rico, uh, came from Cuba because of the Havana Club name uh, in, the, in the name of the rum. And the court said, I actually won't consider the survey at all because everyone knows that uh, this is Puerto Rican rum. It says Puerto Rican rum right on the label, and so people can't be confused. Mm. And yet the survey showed that people were confused because they saw the label with the words Puerto Rican rum, and it was very well controlled because the control took the word Havana and changed it to Silver Club. And so we were, uh, in that case, one was able to see that the reason for people's deception was not because they thought all rum must come from Cuba, uh, but rather the specific use of the Havana name. And I, I think it's troubling uh, when judges substitute their own judgment for those of consumers. And I, I, the last point you made, I think, really resonates with me, because if the concern is maybe the survey is not measuring what's really happening, then let's talk about what's wrong with the survey. Is the methodology right? Was the control good? Did we surveyed the right audience? Did we ask the right questions? But if the survey is accepted, and if it really shows that people are deceived at that level, you know, maybe they're numbskulls, maybe they don't realize that there's an embargo uh, with Cuba. But if the survey really shows that, I, I think it's improper for judges to substitute their own judgment uh, for, for that of what the surveys show. So that's interesting. You have two, two things you said there which I uh, picked up. And one is uh, when the Court of Appeal and Interflora articulated it, it technically was only talking about uh, instances where we're talking about ordinary consumer goods where the judges were in no worse a position than 
the survey respondents to come up with um, an, an assessment. All right. In fact, they've since then not managed to find any circumstance where they're not perfectly well able, including cases where understanding uh, uh, Hindi TV uh, in the United Kingdom with British judges who didn't actually speak the language uh, was regarded as context in which they were still able to understand uh, the nature of the goods. Um, so I think a lot of it does, there is an, there is an impetus um, in cases where they think I'm just as much of a consumer as the consumer is answering, I think, to sort of uh, take it on. Um, the other thing in terms of substituting judgment, let me, let me be a little perverse on this, uh, which may come back to the point about uh, the role of the judge in, and the notion of confusion in European law being a little bit different. I think, uh, and certainly European scholars have said this, that European judges have said that why they don't like surveys is they think that in fact their role as the judge is being substituted by a bunch of scientists out there, right? And so I'm the one who's making the decision. And if you, if you give surveys a tremendous amount of weight, essentially that power is being taken away from me. All I'm doing is sort of administering this factual determination by scientists. And if they are making what is a normative decision, which is, again, the different conception maybe of European trademark law, then, in fact, they want to be in control of that. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, in um, uh, you don't see a lot of that in European, uh, in American confusion discussion by judges. But I remember in the Samara case way back, uh, John Newman dissented at the Second Circuit on the distinctiveness point. And one of the concerns that he had was, in fact, the distinctiveness had a, a lot of inbuilt normative uh, concerns about competition, and by turning it all over to the jury, uh, he was reneging in some way, or the Second Circuit was reneging in some way from making sort of legal judgments. So some of the uh, the concern about who has control of the case, uh, I think, might be at play in in, in in some of the attitudes you see both on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, I'd like to jump in with a question about the uh, Michael Jordan case. Uh, I have a thousand questions about the case, yeah. but we, that's for another time. Um, I was very much struck by uh, your comment that when your husband looked at these photos, he said, oh boy, you're in trouble. Right. Um, and uh, you said, hold on, this is not a trademark case, it's a copyright case. <laughs> and I'll take advantage of that because I thought it was such a lovely expression of some of the distinctions that one is hearing uh, on the panel between a, a trademark analysis of similarity versus a copyright analysis of similarity. And so on the copyright side, I felt like I was back in art history class or something, where you're sort of saying, well, see, that's vertical and that's horizontal. And if you had told me that's horizontal and that's vertical, I might have believed you as well. <laughs> and the inside word about the Nike case, apparently, is that um, Nike benefited from the bionic women at, at uh, Kirkland. They right. had extremely good lawyers, and that really helped them along. And the other side maybe was not as uh, proficient uh, in this particular case on, on these issues, so to speak. So um, I suppose my question is, um, First, like, did you come up with the horizontal versus vertical thing your own, or did the judge come up with that? More generally, is it as a sort of strategic matter, is the plaintiff in a copyright case trying to persuade everyone that this is a copyright case, whereas the, or sorry, a trademark case, whereas the defendant wants to persuade everyone the similarity standard is a copyright standard? Uh, to say that better, because I really, you yeah. look at me like, what did I just say? Um, <laughs> it, I mean, there were no trademark claims in the case. So sometimes were, yeah. you have both, right? But the, the plaintiff wants to essentially show to the judge, look at these two photos. Obviously, there's a problem here. It's right. almost like a bad faith issue. Right. Avoid all of this, this fancy lawyer-made uh, decision tree and just to ask, you know, do you think these are similar or not, regardless right. of all of this filtering and everything else, which begins to sound a little bit more like a trademark question than uh, a copyright question. I mean, as the, the, the standard of similarity is, would you would say, is quite different in those two situations. Yeah, because again, trademark law is all about the consumer and confusion, and it's not, it, it doesn't, one factor is comparing the two marks at mm. issue, right? I mean, that's just one of many. So even if you have identical marks, there might be other factors that show there wouldn't be confusion. It's different businesses, the, cons the consumers are, you know, educated doctors that all, always would know the difference. So, you know, while you might look at something and at first say, oh my God, it's the same word, we're in trouble, it's much more nuanced. And in copyright, the same thing. I mean, there, there doesn't have to be any confusion. It can mm. be do different works. They don't have to be competing. Um, but again, it's not just looking at it and saying, oh yeah, oh my God, it's Michael Jordan. He sort of looks sort of the same. You can't own Michael Jordan's image. You can't, 
you know, own mm -hmm. a basketball hoop or mm -hmm. him holding a basketball. I mean, that's, nobody can have a monopoly on that. Mm -hmm. And you have to sort of, and that's what I think I meant. Like, you don't know copyright. Like, yeah. you don't know about filtering out and, yeah. and it has to be protectable expression. Mm -hmm. um, maybe I could ask a question of David's, uh, which we've talked about this ourselves. And uh, he knows I disagree with him on, on his approach. Um, so I'll ask the question that I've, I've asked this him This is before. why our class is so much fun. <laughs> we disagree yeah. on almost everything. Yeah. So I, I'm very much in favor of using a percentage rather than absolute number of consumers who are confused because the percentage takes into account the percentage of consumers who are not confused. Right. Uh, and Michael Greinberg, uh, who's a trademark scholar who published in NYU Law Review an article years ago on, on consumers who are not confused, uh, essentially really made the point that, okay, you've shown a million people are confused, but the other side has shown that 15 million people are not confused. And those 15 million people benefit from the information that is gained by the defendant's use of a similar and to them non-confusing mark. If we just look at absolute numbers, we don't take into account that cost-benefit analysis of the percentage of the consumer population, however, that might be very small that is confused versus the enormous proportion that is not confused. So that's, that's the argument. And, right. Yeah. So, so first of all, that actually does nothing to justify why 15% is the right number. I mean, you could, one could talk about what should the right balance be. But just because there are some people who are not confused doesn't mean that that means uh, uh, that the defendant should be allowed to continue doing what they're doing. You could say, well, even if it's 30% confusion, still the vast majority, 70%, are not confused. Yeah, I, think not? The, I, I think the, the reason is that trademark law already internalizes a lot of protections for the other consumers. We don't allow marks that are generic to be protected. We don't allow marks that are merely descriptive to be protected. We don't allow marks that are functional to be protected. We have a nominative fair use defense. We have a descriptive fair use defense. And trademark law is a lot about competition. So because I feel like most of these protections that, that protect the, uh, the other consumers are built in, that's one reason why we can say, if despite all of that, there's a, an appreciable number of people who are deceived, Shouldn't we stop that? But I think the other way that I commit that is the very last point uh, I tried to make in my remarks, which is maybe this issue sure, should impact what kind of remedy we look at. And I do think that when we're plaintiffs, too often we go and say, Judge, I want an injunction. But we are seeing courts of appeals say to district courts more often, you need to think about is the remedy properly uh, measured for what the harm is? And uh, although I disagree with the way in which eBay against Merck Exchange, which was a patent case, is being applied in, in the trademark uh, laws, and Mark Lemley and I have both written about why we think the presumption of irreparable harm should still apply, what the Supreme Court did tell us in eBay and, and remind us is that equitable rules still should be considered in thinking about what kind of relief you grant. And if we could show, uh, you know, even in, I mean, if it's toothpaste, that presumably almost everybody in the United States buys. So we're talking about the whole U.S. population. Um, and if 5% of people are deceived by, uh, you know, crossed toothpaste, well, sure, maybe 95% recognize that the colors are different or they're sophisticated enough to see that crossed is not crest. But can we come up with a remedy that will actually not harm those 95%? Because if you sell crossed but you have to change the font or change the colors or, or have a large disclaimer to reduce the confusion, I don't think that that remedy actually harms that 95%. Mm -hmm. If we're saying you can't sell this at all anymore, well, yes, maybe we are harming the 95%. But more often than not, even if it's an injunction, it doesn't take a product off the market. It simply says, can we reduce the level of confusion? And I think courts should think about whether an injunction is automatically the right answer. Okay. I see we have some good questions coming up, so we'll, we'll start with them. So in the spirit of an academic conference, I have a comment and then a question. And also in the spirit of academic, Barton stole my question, so I'm going to ask a different one uh, that's related to that. So the comment is um, I sort of a, about the colloquy between uh, David and Graham. And I think, Graham, you'll sort of uh, appreciate this. Um, it seems to me that what's happening in a lot of cases when, when judges say things like, you know, I don't really care what the survey shows in this circumstance, what they're really saying is just, 
whatever level of confusion here is just not, it's not reasonable confusion, or there's nothing that I would require of the defendants beyond what they're doing that is reasonable. So they're just sort of substituting a normative judgment about what kinds of confusion should count. And so maybe that's illegitimate, but I would just, I think, point out that it's actually pervasive through the doctrine and that there's all kinds of places where courts just sort of say as a matter of fiat that there's not going to be confusion caused by this. If you think of the private label goods cases where they sort of just don't accept the idea that there's any empirical evidence that's relevant to the question, they just sort of announce it. So it doesn't strike me as unusual. I think it's just it would be better if the courts were more transparent in what they were saying about them. Uh, so the question is this, is that I, uh, along the lines of what Barton asked is, in those cases, if the argument, in the cases where there's a relatively small percentage of consumers who are confused, as the survey shows, uh, should there be some obligation, and you know, and I, I appreciate the comments about the remedy because I think there's been some impetus in that direction. But um, if the proponent of the of the argument about confusion is essentially suggesting we can come up with a remedy that doesn't harm this vast majority of consumers, um, should the proponent of the survey have to demonstrate that empirically? Should you have to actually do a, a sort of an alternative survey that shows we can actually make these particular kinds of changes, and we need to stand that up alongside the survey that's actually being introduced to the court? Yeah, it's a great question, Mark. And you know, the Second Circuit in the HBO Showtime case actually suggested that if you're uh, relying on a disclaimer, it's your burden to come forward to show that the disclaimer is effective. And I think we can take that idea and ex expand it. And one of the things Sherry Diamond and I have been discussing is whether we should have multiple controls to show actually which part of the trade dress, for example, is actually the thing that's causing the confusion. Because when you look at the whole trade dress, you may not be aware of which is the element that's causing confusion. And I think it would be very interesting for uh, parties to actually come to court and say, you know, what I want them to do is not don't just enjoin them, make them change it this way, judge, because this would reduce the level of confusion. And I, I think a smart plaintiff should be thinking about doing surveys that would show that, and I think it would give courts more comfort in issuing an injunction because they would feel like this really is going to be effective in minimizing that level of confusion. Uh, Dale Sandali and then Ron. I'm very interested in this issue of appreciable number of consumers being confused. I think, David, you suggested that, well, you know, if you have a popular product, even if it's some number less than 10%, that's still a lot of people. You're making a quantitative argument. My question for you and for the panel is what about a qualitative argument? Have you seen anyone arguing, yeah, it's only 3%, but this is about a drug that would kill people? And we got to protect those people, even if it's 1%. Yeah. We, we actually we had a case uh, for Bayer involving a uh, flea and tick remedy. And um, there's a particular product that's very effective in ki killing fleas and ticks on dogs, but it also is very effective at killing cats. And uh, if you are a house that has dogs and cats, you shouldn't use this product on your dog, because it's not going to go over very well in the rest of the family. And so you know there. We actually didn't even have to go to surveys, because just by pointing out that the risk of, of people being deceived and using this product without it being clear that this could kill their cats, it's so draconian that it really built right into our remedy. And I will say it goes to a point Graham mentioned, which is surveys should not be the end all. So, surveys are one element in the multi-factor uh, elements that should be considered, but I do think courts should consider more. The reason we haven't seen the exact argument you've just made is that no plaintiff in this environment would put forward a survey that has under 10%, because you are walking into such a trap, given what the courts have said about surveys under 10%. Um, and so th then the really interesting issue is, when I'm a defendant and I do a survey to try to prove an absence of confusion, and I get something like 7 or 8%, I have to say, as a defendant, I get very nervous. I'm probably not going to use that survey because I'm worried about these speeches all coming back to haunt me, uh, and people saying, oh, yes, 7% should be enough. Um, and it may be those cases where someone might try to argue that. The, the qualitative part, where I think we also can focus on it, is the verbatims. Because I really think you know, the, the quantitative number of X percent, that's one thing. But I really like, in my briefs and, and in my arguments to courts, to show this is what consumers said were the reasons. Why did you say that? If you don't get anyone in response to the why did you say that question, feeding back the trade dress aspects, 
you have, or, or the trademark, South Beach, you have a real problem. In the South Beach case, for example, a number of people in their responses, their verbatim responses, said things like, it says South Beach on the packet. Of course it comes from Dr. Agatston. Or, uh, duh, it's a no-brainer. I saw the same book in the bookstore. And when you get the, when you get the quality of verbatim answers, that, I think, can bolster a smaller quantitative number, because it shows the court that the very thing you're concerned about is actually the thing that, that's causing the deception. And, and another thing is, and Dale, I know you, you know this well, you, you taught me, um, but another thing to do is it's not always just surveys, and that's the end of the, end of the discussion. I mean, we use other types of experts on these issues all the time, so you can ha in trademark cases. So you can have somebody talking about whether a mark, a linguist or somebody in the industry saying, what's the meaning of a mark? We, you know, we use someone who opined on the meaning of pin and was pin generic for pinning on the internet. Um, you can have an, a marketing expert who can talk about the marks, how consumers are perceiving it in the, in, in the marketplace, how the brand images overall are different or, or the same. And that's, I mean, they can't opine on the ultimate issue, but they can opine on different factors that go to secondary meaning, third party use, all that sort of thing. Sometimes you might have a fact witness at your client who can, has some knowledge, but often not, and you know they don't want to do all that heavy lifting. Um, and so it'd be ni it's nice to have these sort of industry or marketing experts who can buttress a survey, um, and and hopefully, I do agree. Survey evidence is probably the most powerful now, but it's always good having other types of experts to help your arguments. And and that goes to what Graham was saying about the European model or the British model, where they appear to be moving and have moved in that direction. Right. Yeah, um, it, it, and, and, and the other part of, to pick up on David in that response is, is on the verbatims. Um, it always struck me as, as illogical, um, uh, as someone who was arguing for more use of surveys in the UK courts, um, that they were willing to say that the survey is utterly unrepresentative, but if you could just bring in four people out of those unrepresentative sample and we'll talk to them, uh, we will get to the bottom of what's going on. But actually the, the impulse behind that, even though it seems quite illogical, was that the ability to have a, an ongoing dialogue that followed the bread trail a little bit more would give you a better sense of exactly the nature of the type of the confusion, how deep the confusion was, what were the consequences um, for the consumer of being confused. Um, that would allow the court to get a better sense of what was at stake in the case. It brings to mind the, the old story, the true story of was it Judge Hand or Judge Friendly who in the 17 magazine case decades ago uh, before surveys were common, actually just went around the courthouse and asked people, uh, asked young girls, uh, showed them 17 for girdles versus magazines, and then reported this uh, in, his, uh, in his opinion. Very unscientific uh, right. approach. Yeah. Uh, to and, just and totally inappropriate. I was going to say appeal. a little creepy. <laughs> <laughs> and inappropriate for other reasons, too. Yeah, uh, that's, uh, sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Rob. Um, if we talk about surveys and confusion, doesn't the word likelihood carry uh, the imprimatur of, say, 51%, as opposed to possibility of, or appreciable, or uh, those other concepts? So if we're going to use likelihood of confusion, why don't we say 51%? And the other uh, part of this question is, aren't there studies that show there are going to be uh, X number of people fooled all the time, no matter the similarity? some of the people, you can fool some of the people all of the time. So what are the control levels of ordinary confusion that we get all the time? Yeah, so uh, the, the, the second part of your question is actually very easy to respond to because I do think controls totally protect you against the some people are always going to be confused. I will say I've done surveys where control levels are 2 or 3%, but I've done surveys where the control levels have been 20, 30 percent, um, and it really depends on the product. But the point is, if the control is well designed, you know, it's really telling you what's going on here. It may be that, the, that you have to ask a very focused question. For example, in a squirt style survey, where you're showing the product side by side, the very nature of the survey suggests a, a relationship. Why else would you be asking me this question? So in squirt surveys, we tend to see much higher levels of control uh, noise than we do in, in EverReady surveys. On your first question, I don't think the word likelihood really carries that much significance. I think likelihood is as compared to actual. In other words, the point is, and 
The whole idea of likelihood of confusion very often comes up in preliminary injunction motions. You don't have to wait until the harm has occurred. If, if we allow this product to be sold and we let it go out into the market, is it likely to cause harm? And if so, that harm should be remedied now. We don't want to actually wait till the harm has occurred uh, and then say, oh yes, you're right, this actually has caused lots of confusion because then the irreparable harm uh, is irreparable if, if you truly believe it's irreparable. I just don't think likelihood uh, can do as much work as suggesting that it means 50% uh, should be the threshold. And indeed, from a policy perspective, I would find it very troubling if someone was selling a product that confused 45 or 40% of all consumers and a court would say, well, it's not a majority, so you know, we'll let that happen. That certainly is an appreciable number uh, of consumers. Yeah, then shouldn't we rephrase the test to be appreciable uh, uh, confusion? I think it's likelihood of confusion among a pre appreciable number. Like, it's not more likely than not. I mean, that's how I always thought of it, but. I'm getting a signal from Michael Weinberg, our executive director, that. <laughs> I'll play the heavy here. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we're out of time, but Mr. I hope Sandy. you enjoyed this panel. I certainly did, and let's thank the panel.